The South is a region captivated by history. Civil War history, civil rights history, football history, family history. It's always a topic of conversation, but it's also comparatively recent history. What will our history look like a thousand years from now? How will we be remembered? What will be our story? That's part of what I discuss with Dr. Sarah Parkak a space archaeologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the 2016 winner of the TED Prize. She has a new book out called Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past, which highlights how she and her colleagues use satellite technology to deepen our understanding of ancient cultures. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I'm chatting with Sarah Parkak about ancient civilizations, Confederate monuments, and how she has helped carve out a whole new field of exploration. So dust off your fedora and join us as we explore this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Well, Sarah, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. You are a space archaeologist. That's my fun title. That's yes. your fun title. What's your real title? I'm really a professor of archaeology, but, you know, I mean, you got to get the kids well, interested. Your, your most fun title is Indie from Space, right? That's oh, your Twitter yeah. handle. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't help myself. How did you... Uh, how did you get into this field? So I've always been interested in um, archaeology and ancient Egypt. Um, I've been interested ever since I was a little kid. And if you ask most Egyptologists, they'll all more or less tell you the same thing. Starting from age very young, maybe four, maybe five, they just developed a, a passion or an interest for Egypt. Um, and in my case, it was weird in that, you know, I'm originally from Bangor, Maine, and I grew up there in the 80s and 90s, and this was just pre-cable, so I don't know if I saw maybe the, an ad for the second version of the Tut exhibit coming through the U.S., or uh, it was a National Geographic magazine, I don't know, but from that very young age, I started talking a lot about Egypt, and my parents thought it was a little odd, kind of came from nowhere, but the Tooth Fairy brought me this great book about ancient Egypt when I was six or seven. So um, that's really what got me got me going, and I've loved it ever since. Well, let's see. I, I was born in Memphis, and I lived there till I was about six. And I remember seeing King Tut through, and literally seeing in you know the the Memphis pyramid. So seeing King Tut in a pyramid, and I had a book on hieroglyphics, and I was very interested in Egypt as a child too. But how does that you know how do you go from six to all of a sudden studying Egyptology at Yale? How does that right. become a career? So um, you know I was always interested, but in high school um, I got really into politics. Uh, Bangor is. Kind kind of a, a hotbed for um, uh, or was for the Democratic Party. Um, my parents had known this family called the Baldacci's. John Baldacci was our uh, congressman for, for a number of years and then our governor, wonderful, wonderful person. And um, I ended up doing a lot of volunteering and outreach um, and started Young Democrats at uh, my high school. So that's what I thought I would do. I thought I would go, um, when I got into Yale, I thought I was going to go off and study history or political science, go to law school, come back to Maine and run for office. 
Um, but life doesn't ever happen the way you think it will. And my freshman year there, um, so Yale's divvied up into a residential college system. Um, so instead of living in a dorm, you live in a residential college. And one of the fellows, so an eminent professor or, or scholar that lives in the colleges, um, one of the residential fellows of my college, Timothy Dwight at Yale, uh, was called uh, William Kelly Simpson. And he was one of the preeminent Egyptologists in the world. Um, and I ended up starting to work for him, um, and that that was it. I took some introductory courses, took some archaeology courses, and just absolutely fell in love with the ancient world. And uh, at, at Yale, um, I was very lucky. Most of my classes were really small and ended up getting to work closely with a number of professors. I ended up getting to work at the Yale University Art Gallery, ended up doing a lot of volunteer and outreach in the Peabody Museum with local school groups. So I really got to um, get my get my hands dirty, as it were, early on. And get, I got to go to Egypt after my sophomore year. So yeah, I, I got hooked. And that, that was it. And you were kind of entering in this field, I guess, when technology was catching up and, and allowing us to search for ancient artifacts in a way that has never been done before. Just just for my knowledge, because I'm a layman on this, explain a little bit about how space archaeology works. So um, the the field has really, I feel, taken off in the last five to ten years. Um, but back in the kind of late 90s to early 2000s when I was studying, I say early aughts when I was studying at Yale, um, you know, it, clearly remote, the, it's called, the field's called remote sensing, so it means uh, it refers to the field where scholars and scientists use satellites to map things around the world, everything from meteorology to um, looking at polar ice caps shrinking to studying uh, animal habitats and deforestation. If you know, if it's a if it's a science or a social science, you can probably find some way to apply satellite imagery to it because you're looking for changes over time or you're looking to detect specific things. Um, but back then, um, the uh, one high-resolution satellite had been launched. It was too expensive to afford. But my senior year uh, at Yale, I took an introductory course in remote sensing, so in the application of using this technology. Um, and the reason I took the class was because of my grandfather, uh, Harold Young. He was a forestry professor at the University of Maine from uh, the late 1940s through the early 1970s. And he was one of the pioneers in using aerial photography in forestry. Um, he's a world-renowned professor, a world-renowned scholar. And I took the course because, unfortunately, that uh, my senior year, my grandfather had passed away a couple of years before. But I really wanted to know what Grampy had done. And I thought, oh, you know, it'll be fun to learn. I'm sure loads of people have used this for archaeology. And what I realized as I was doing my research paper for the class, and there were hardly any sources, virtually no one had done it. I mean, there there's clearly a body of work, but it, the field was still in its infancy back then. So this would have been 16, 17 years ago. And you literally wrote the textbook for this field. I, not not only say the textbook, there, there there were one or two others around the same time. But I, I, I wrote a textbook um, because one like the one I wrote didn't exist. I sort of wrote it uh, to myself as a graduate student, um, trying to answer all the questions that I had because no one had done uh, large-scale survey work in Egypt before using um, satellite imagery. And so I had to develop a whole methodology. I had to figure out how it worked in the field. Of course, PhDs, most of the time it's a disaster. So I had to keep unraveling what was going wrong. Um, and then I wanted to teach other people how to... How to I tell people I'd rather be a, a, a terrible warning than a shining example. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to, to show... Other 
other people how to how to do it as well. Just in a very basic term, you know, if you're where's Waldoing and you're looking at these geographical representations from space, how do you see ancient artifacts in Egypt that people haven't been able to see on the ground level? How does that work? So yes, yeah, so um, there. First of all, when you're looking at things from space, um, you know, most of us now use Google Earth. It's a great resource, and human eyes are far better than um, the machines at detecting particular patterns and shapes. That's what we've been doing for the 300,000 years that we've existed as, as humans. Um, so first of all, you are looking for particular shapes or particular features that have colors, tones, textures, hues. And then what oftentimes you're doing is you're processing the satellite imagery. So when satellites capture data, um, most of the time they're capturing uh, data in the visible part of the light spectrum, which is what we can see with our eyes, which is great and really useful and really helpful. But where satellites really start to aid scientific research is that they capture data in the near, middle, and far infrared parts of the light spectrum. And there's some satellites that capture radar data, for example. What the satellite data in the near, middle, middle and far infrared does is is it allows you to see things that are otherwise invisible. So, for example, um, you know, everything on the Earth's surface has its own distinct chemical signature. And you may be looking, say, at a rainforest or, um, or, or a grassland, and it may look like the same, you know, millions of trees or hundreds of thousands of trees in the same types of grass. But all that grass and all those trees, each individual species will reflect a little bit differently in the near infrared because of the health of its vegetation. And so what we do with the satellite imagery is we use it to discriminate particular groups of vegetation or soil or things on the ground in, in, in colors that we uh, wouldn't think of. Um, so if things appear visible, or rather, if things appear invisible, we can help to make them visible by processing the imagery. And that's that's really some of the main work that my colleagues do and I as well um, with looking at satellite images. So we're looking for, sometimes you're looking for um, horses in haystacks, and sometimes you're looking for needles in haystacks. And the satellite imagery can really, really help to make features pop out, whether it's a whole site, whether it's a wall on a site, whether it's a relic uh, river or, or canal or old road. And in some ways, I mean, this fundamentally can change how we view our entire past. I mean, I understand, um, you know, that they've found evidence of uh, far more advanced civilizations in South America and Central America than than our sort of 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, you know, European centric mentality would have told us that, you know, there are these vast interconnected empires down there. And a lot of that was seen through the same kind of technology. Is that right? Right. So, okay, we're going to unpack what, <laughs> what kind of the, the statement you made. So basically, there's, there's this sense um, in, uh, you know, because of what's taught in schools, you know, this idea that that Columbus discovered America. Um, one of my favorite memes that goes around the internet, it's like Columbus approaching the U.S. and there are a bunch of Native Americans standing there and just go home. Like, you know, there, there have been indigenous Native North American groups here for uh, 15,000, 20,000 years. And there's now new data that's come out to sh um, show just how and when and where early groups of peoples um, or how the, how the Americas were people. And that, that's subject for a longer discussion another time. Um, but this idea that, that civilizations around the world existed at far greater scales than we've previously 
imagined. Um, a lot of that, kind of the, the new perceptions and new ideas about these ancient civilizations, it's coming from the satellite data. Obviously, there's a lot of other great archaeological work, um, DNA, looking at dating, etc. Um, but, you know, you look at the work that m- colleagues of mine like uh, Damien Evans is doing in Cambodia. He's used LIDAR, which stands for Light Detection and Ranging. It's a laser system that's found on, you can fly in airplanes, and he's used it to map um, huge amounts of Angkor Wat, uh, which is the Khmer civilization, so from 800 plus years ago. So when you go there now, you see these beautiful temples, but it's it's in the middle of a dense rainforest. And what the LIDAR does is it allows you to remove all the overlaying vegetation, so you're left with a bare earth model. And he's used that data to show kind of daily life um, in the Khmer Empire and shown, you know, with a lot of mapping as well, how and why that civilization collapsed because of its over-reliance or over-dependence on water sources and things things didn't go well for them. So it's, it's not just about finding the things, although that's very cool and really fun. It's about using all the data to answer these really, really big questions about how and why civilizations grew and collapsed and why particular things may have happened at specific periods of time uh, because we need a lot of that data. And really, it's all about scale. You can say something with 20 sites and you can make interesting inferences and come up with some interesting conclusions. You can also say some really interesting things with a thousand sites and be far more certain about the conclusions that you're reaching. You um, have obviously been heavily associated with the TED circuit and you're the 2016 TED Prize winner. And you had this quote in one of your TED Talks that I really liked, uh, we're digging for people, not things. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So when you go to a museum um, or when you, you know, you look at any Hollywood movie, you know, Indiana Jones included, um, it seems like archaeologists are obsessed with shiny things. um, And like, it's really cool to find something shiny when you're digging. Um, But it's nice. But at the end of the day, we're really interested in the people that lived in the past. What made them tick? um, What made civilizations thrive? What made them survive and or not survive? What, What lessons or inferences can we pull from that today? So, you know, that, that's really what drives us um, in, in the field. We're really much more interested how many people lived in a particular place, what were their diseases, what was daily life like in ancient Egypt or Greece or Rome or uh, the, for the Maya. Um, that's, that's really what people are interested in generally. You know, yeah, okay, that's nice. It's a shiny gold ring, but who owned the ring? Why did they own the ring? But did they drop it? Um, why did they drop it? What was it for? Were they a priestess? Ooh, they were a priestess. Well, that's interesting. I want to know more about her. Um, so it's the people behind the objects that, that drive us to ask these big questions. So I'm curious. Uh, you obviously grew up in Maine. You went to Yale. Then you got your PhD at Cambridge, taught briefly uh, for the University of Wales, Swansea. And then uh, all of a sudden you're in Birmingham, Alabama. How, what was that transition like and how did you wind up here? So um, as soon as I finished up my PhD, so that was the year my husband and I got married. Yeah, don't finish your PhD, get married, and move country in the same year. That's a bad idea. We survived. It's been 14 wonderful, wonderful years. Um, So I was teaching for the year, um, filling in at the University of Wales, Swansea, for a professor that had gone on leave. My husband had gotten a a job there, um, and I just went on the job market, you know, like you do when you finish up your PhD. It's it's a crapshoot. You just don't know what jobs are going to be available. And I remember it was later that winter, the early part of the year, I got an email from someone here, so from, from UAB. And I thought, UA where? Did I apply for that job, Alabama? 
<laughs> well, Alabama, because being from the Northeast, you don't you don't ever really think about the the South. There's there's still a dividing line. Um, and so when I came here for my interview, it was almost exactly um, gosh, thirteen years ago, which is hard to believe. You know, Birmingham at that point there wasn't as much going on. This was back in two thousand six. Downtown was very very dead. Uh, I thought, what am I, what is this place? Like, what are we doing? What am I, why am I here? But there's something happening on campus, kind of a lot of interesting redevelopment. I got to um, speak with a then dean, uh, Tenant McWilliams, who's become a, became my mentor and very, very dear friend. Um, but I didn't think I'd get the job. You know, it was my first big job interview. And when I got the email from the chair congratulating me, I thought, whoa, like that's that's bonkers. So my husband, um, Greg Mumford, gave up his position in Wales. We figured we'd have a better shot at a dual track career in the U.S. Unfortunately, Tenant, Tenant got that. And um, uh, pretty soon, Greg, Greg had a job here as, as well. So yeah, here, here we are. You mentioned growing up in Maine, there being that dividing line. I mean, what were your perceptions of the South? And then uh, how did you find the South once you moved down here? Oh, loaded question. Um, so, you know, when you're from the Northeast, um, you know, you, you just do have a lot of preconceived notions about what the South is like. And no, I did not think that, you know, there was no running water and uh Etc. A lot of people actually think that about Maine. Um, yes, we do have electricity, and everyone has their teeth in Maine. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Maine and Alabama are very, very similar. Um, smallish populations. A lot of the um, both states are heavily forested. A lot of the state, uh, both states are very are very rural. But uh, yeah, I just I I didn't think that I would find Birmingham to be as liberal, uh, as as welcoming, as uh, sophisticated, because. I'd never been here before, and obviously there's there's a lot happening now. Obviously, the um, tons of international students, a, a, a large LGBT population. Um, but you know, Alabama's very complicated, um, and we're transitioning to a purplish tinged state. And it's really an interesting. It's a very interesting time to be here in this moment of transition. Um, but yeah, I definitely. Thought a lot of things about Alabama, some of which are very true and will take a long time to change. But some of the things I thought are, are changing now and changing for the better. As an anthropologist and as an archaeologist and historian, I mean, the South, you know, for better and worse, is um, deeply rooted in history, whether it's near history of the civil rights movement here in Birmingham or slightly less near history of the Civil War and Confederate monuments. I see an interesting intersection there between your work, you know, when you're looking at monuments from ancient Egypt or ancient Rome and sort of the argument that some people would make for the preservation of Confederate monuments here in the, in the Southeast. You know, it's, it's part of our heritage. It's right. part of our culture. Um, right. What would you say to that? Well, um, you know, 150 years ago, um, slave owning was considered part of people's culture. And, uh, you know, just it's it's disturbing to me that people want to hold on to these incredibly racist and hugely problematic um, symbols. Um, you know, when and yet the tons, by the way, tons of my colleagues have, have written um, eloquent pieces on this in a variety of online posts, blogs and interviews. And this uh, has been very much in the in the international and national dialogue. You know, to what extent do we um, keep up these monuments to individuals who represented uh, um, very racist, bigoted views? They own slaves, etc. Um, and. When you look at ancient 
when you look at, at ancient cultures and monumentality, um, there is great erasure. That is um, part of um, part of the archaeological record. Oftentimes, kings uh, would take statues and carve out the names of um, of the previous kings just so they could have a statue. Uh, if they didn't like a particular king, they'd knock out uh, their cartouches in Egypt, um, throughout Egypt, in particular, you have the kings like Akhenaten. So you see this throughout time. There's no, there's just there's no record of in many ways, keeping things, things move with the times. Um, so I think we just have to take a very hard look at our beliefs. Um, you know, we're having a lot of uh, difficult dialogues now as a country. I think uh, whatever the, re the listeners here believe about the 2016 election, it ripped off the Band-Aid that was hiding um, the deep-seated racism and bigotry that has long been a core part of America and clearly part of part of the founding fathers. That's that's a whole other issue. So yeah, it's 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 a very complicated issue to unpack. But I don't see the need to. And this is my personal opinion. I don't see the need to have these symbols of these individuals who stood and believed for terrible things um, that are still obviously very, very much prevalent in, in America. If I understand correctly, I mean, the argument would be that some people are making is we should preserve these because they say who we are. And they would say, look at the monuments from ancient Rome or ancient Egypt. You know, we know about those civilizations because those monuments are still there. What I'm hearing you say is that what we know from studying those monuments is that those cultures were constantly changing and constantly revising their symbols and monuments right. anyway. And so that, it, you know, if anything, it says that that's something that cultures naturally do over the course of a few hundred years and that you shouldn't necessarily sustain something in the short term just because it's something that represented the country 100 years ago. Right. Yeah, I think I think when you look at, 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 at histories and cultures around the world, how and why things survive, it's not just a matter of a culture saying this is what we believe and so it's going to be kept. Sometimes, you know, I think of the 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 great cat one of the great caches that was discovered at Luxor Temple about thirty years ago. Essentially, what would happen is all these kings and high priests and and rich individuals would go to these temples, um, and they'd have tons and tons of their statues there. Uh, and because the temples were full of basically ancient Egyptian mojo, you know, offerings could be made to them. They would be participating in rituals, and and that's it. They would they would be there to kind of absorb the power in the temples and to show their power and their presence. Well, eventually the temples got really, really crowded and later kings went, wait a minute, there's no room for our stuff. So they would basically go through and do a sweep and take all the statues and just dump them in a big pit so they could start over. And all those statues were found um, by by this excavation. Actually, an Egyptian gentleman, a, a, a friend of mine, a Rice Farouk, who since passed away, he knew where to go. Um, always local people know exactly where to find things. And there's this amazing cache there. So like even in ancient Egypt, that's one instance of uh, it's not Demnasia Mora. It's not like they're destroying the ideas or symbols, they were just making space because they wanted the, the the space versus the previous kings. So we have to look very carefully and very critically about what and why previous cultures and civilizations did things. And we have to be very, very careful when we're trying to ascribe our incredibly um, modern sensibilities, ideas, ideals onto the past. It doesn't work often. 
And we have to be careful as well when thinking how my past peoples did things because it was always in... That's why archaeology is important. We understand... We study the past to understand the context of why people did things um, because they had different religions and, and languages and motivations, totally different than us. Think about Shakespearean English. Think about how much you struggle when you're reading Romeo and Juliet and that was you know, four and a half, 500 years ago. Extrapolate that back thousands of years. Right. Coming up after the break, we discuss Sarah's new book and how future archaeologists will study today's culture. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I, I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. There are obviously science celebrities, and there are celebrity scientists, and uh, you know there's people who exist somewhere in between that spectrum. There's you know Bill Nye the Science Guy, who has no background in science, and there's Megan Fox, who I've seen you comment on on Twitter, who is now hosting a uh, archaeology show, uh, and then there are scientists um, like Stephen Hawking and others who have um, achieved a level of stature and recognition in pop culture. Uh, you seem to have reached kind of that status, like you're going on uh, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. You know you have a big Twitter following. Uh, you do TED speaking engagements uh, often. How do you balance, you know, the need to research as with the need to kind of promote your your field? Interesting question you asked me that. So I just gave a plenary um, talk at the Archaeological Institute of America um, annual meeting. It was in San Diego. It's the biggest archaeology society in North America. And I actually talked a lot about this, um, the need for more public engagement by scientists and by archaeologists and how I see it as the crucial issue in archaeology right now. Um, you know, with uh, the rise of the alt-right and fake news, the rise of nationalism, um, ancient aliens and really bad shows by people like Megan Fox. Um, There's so many misperceptions and misunderstandings about archaeology in the public. Um, and it bleeds into racism and nationalism. You know, the reason that uh, ancient aliens is so popular, a lot of people don't realize this, is um, it's a lot more comfortable if you're a racist to think that ancient aliens built the pyramids versus people that have darker skin. And when you explain that to people, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, you're, you're taking away the agency of so many diverse ancient cultures and peoples who were extraordinarily brilliant and creative. And in so many instances, those cultures survive to this day. And you're, you're taking away the past. You're robbing the past. And you're erasing the past of, of so many groups of people. Um, and this, this very much ties into what we're seeing now with um, the building the or pretending that we want to build the southern border. By the way, as an archaeologist, walls don't work. They've never worked. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's a whole other issue. Um, so, so yeah, so I think what, what, what more engagement does for the public, hopefully it educates them, it teaches them that we have this great creative streak, that we make a lot of mistakes, that we can overcome them. Sometimes we don't. Here are the consequences. Um, and that's the core of why I am a more publicly engaged 
archaeologist is to, to communicate the the obviously first my excitement about the past, but also to show people um, just how connected we are as a as a as a globe, um, how diversity is important. And I talked in in this presentation about how difficult it is to to do public engagement because especially as a younger woman, um, not as not quite as young as I used to be, but certainly <laughs> I was I was younger when I got started. Um, there's this this perceived threat. You're seen as not as serious of a scholar. Um, you're in it for the fame. You're in it for the money. God, I wish there was more money. But you know, <laughs> a lot of people have misperceptions about what 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 quote unquote fame means. It means you get a lot of interesting emails in your right. public inbox. But I think it's it's essential. Um, I'm trying to encourage and en- engage and support the next generation. As Michelle Obama, Obama says, as we rise, we should take others with us, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to as much as I can promote and support and encourage younger scholars, diverse scholars. It's it's hard. And I'm, yeah, it, it's weird. Like, I don't ever want to be as well known as someone like Bill Nye. I've met him before. He's, he's lovely. Um, I, I really like my privacy. I'm very, um, I'm a very private person. I just like being very quiet with my family. And, um, but it's like, you have a platform, you know, I've had a lot of training in public communication. Um, so what do you do with that platform? And there's no one right now in this country um, that is a public voice for, or a, a big public voice for the past. Obviously, there are many, many thousands of archaeologists working in the U.S. and they're doing great things. So yeah, I, I um, it's it's important to me. And you know, obviously, with 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 the book and other things coming out this year, um, you know, I I recognize that I have a big platform and I've been doing a lot of careful thinking about how I want to use it for um, for as much good as possible. And you've obviously written textbooks, which would be geared towards academics, but what was it like writing a book that's geared towards public consumption? So that was difficult. So yeah, so um, you know, I'm used to writing dorky academic articles that, that not many people could understand, and that's important, and I will never stop writing them because the core of what I do is my, is my research. I'm a scientist, um, and that's really important to me. But I thought when I uh, when I started the book writing process that I was a good writer because I'd written a PhD and a textbook and lots of um, articles and speak and I'd been on TV and yeah my ego shrunk to the size of an atom real fast um, the the amount of effort it takes to be able to communicate in a in a bright fun uh, engaging way about any field uh, it is enormous and I did not fully understand respect or appreciate that um, so it took many many months of very very hard work I got to read lots of how to write books they helped a bit everyone who is interested in writing nonfiction should read draft number four by John McPhee um, that was the book that really helped me to think about book arc but yeah you have to think about book arc you have to think about pacing you have to think about what's going to get your readers to commit to turning the page and then to keep going uh, and you want to reward your readers but not reward them too much and too fast so I learned a lot about writing last year that I did not think that I would learn. Um, but it's affected. It's affected everything that I do. It's affected the way I speak and present. It's affected the way I teach. Um, it's affected the way I, I communicate. So I, at this conference I mentioned before, I'm, I really encouraged all my colleagues to think about writing more popular books. I mean, tons of economists write them. Tons of psychologists write them. Why can't more archaeologists write them? We're the best storytellers in the world. I think the world is hungry for that right now. Uh, who's your target audience for this book? So um, my multiple target audiences, but but mainly people who are really passionate and interested in sort of history, science, the application of technology. You know, I, I wrote it 
in such a way that you know, if you have an interest in archaeology and history, and you know a little bit about it, um, you're going to be excited. But also, if you're someone who maybe loves space and space exploration, um, you'll also enjoy it. Um, See, so yeah, I tried to write it for as, as broad an audience as possible. Um, I did some things in the book that I didn't know that I was going to do when I started. Um, I tried my hand at fiction writing and science fiction. Um, so in one chapter, I tell the story of a 4,200-year-old woman um, who's actually a real person. She was a skeleton excavated at a site in Egypt's Delta. We know nothing about her aside from her uh, skeleton and her age. That's it. Um, so I tell her story. And, That's cool. and, and then in one chapter, uh, which was my absolute favorite chapter to write, I it's a science fiction chapter, and I tell the story of what archaeology will be like in 100 years. What will archaeology be like in 100 years? I don't want to ruin too much, okay. um, but it's, it's basically the, I tell the story, which is pretty wild. And then I back up and say, okay, this is where archaeology is right now. Here are all the tools we're using. Here are all the approaches. Here are the advances in technology. Um, and this is why I basically build my case for why I stated what I stated. Um, and I I don't know. I, I We could get there in 50 years, not 100. Um, but yeah, really looking at how do you predict the future of technology when 15 years ago, none of us could have predicted the iPhone. I'm also curious, you know, the future of archaeology in terms of what they will find about our civilization. Because obviously you're looking at things that were handcrafted, uh, anything from, you know, pottery to uh, to pyramids. And so there's the imperfections of the human hand present in it. Whereas now, you know, we all have uh, devices that were created by machines. They're perfectly put together and there's more of them than ever before. Is there going to be too much to sort through in the future to see what, you know, what there really is about this culture? Or what are your thoughts on, on the future of that? So so I think um, a lot of this is encapsulated in the moment of the um, Star Wars prequel when they're trying to get the drive with the information on it um, sort of plugged in, um, obviously in the iconic scene in the first Star Wars movie, but just kind of leading up to it. And everyone's been joking, yeah, there's no way that that drive, like that information would be consistent because of how quickly technology changes. Think about this, you know, you go from a floppy, floppy disk to a hard disk to a jump drive, and most of our jump drives die after a year. Um, you know, how and, and why and where does information get stored? You have tons of information on old, old computers that you will never, ever see again. And yet that's probably what we're going to be excavating in the future. Um, you know, a website goes defunct unless it's saved. Where does that information go? Um, you know, so much information in the past was, of course, inscribed on walls or, or, or tablets or little pieces of pottery called ostraca or papyrus, which is preserved very well in drier climates um, or, or on other bits of material. And that's what's left. That's what's been preserved. That's how we uh, know what we know aside from studying human skeletons and tons of other information. But that's where we get our written information. And that's where we get the data about how ancient peoples thought. How are we going to get that in 2000 years? Is all this information going to be kind of stored in one place? Um, it's a big issue. And already people are talking about archaeologies of information. Um, so yeah, I'm fascinated yeah. by this stuff. And then how do you sort that with uh, the information that's created by humans versus artificial intelligence versus Russian bots and things like that? So yeah, the, the, the U 2,000 years from now is going to have a lot to sort through. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about your 2016 TED Prize and the project that you launched after that, uh, Global Explorer. So you are training volunteers online to search for search for ruins in Peru. How does how does that work? So when I um, made this wish at TED, it was kind of it came from years and years and years of um, sort of deep frustration. Uh, the work that I do is very time consuming. Most science is time consuming. Um, but I also waste a lot of time. I don't mean waste time playing games on my iPhone. I mean, I spend hours and hours and hours looking at satellite imagery and you don't find anything. It's not like you're finding things every two seconds. Um, good science takes time. It's complicated, but you just there aren't archaeological sites. Yes, there are archaeological sites everywhere, but there aren't archaeological sites everywhere. Um, so you could spend days or weeks looking at satellite data and maybe finding one or two things. So the idea is that if, if you can train the crowd um, for how to be good pattern and shape recognizers, which, as I said before, most people are, the idea is potentially that the crowd could help find sites and features and archaeological site looting, potentially as effectively as us as those of us that are specialists. It was a huge experiment when we launched the platform. So it's an online citizen science crowdsourcing platform. It allows anyone to look at satellite imagery and help to find ancient sites and features. So when you go on the site, you take a tutorial. Um, the interface is really uh, straightforward. So I spent a lot of time learning about um, design thinking and design. I didn't really know much about that at all. Um, and so we spent a lot of time developing user archetypes. So you can't just make something. Who are you making it for? What are what's their skill set going to be? And yet you can't just make something for everyone. You can try, but you need to design specifically for groups of people and figure out where their potential interests and strengths and weaknesses over intersect and design for that and think about what you're overcoming. Um, so to date, we've had over 80,000 users. I think we're up to 86,000 users from um, from nearly every country in the world. They've looked at over 16 million satellite images, so they've done a lot of work. Uh, and they found tens of thousands of potential archaeological features, several hundred of which are actually large sites that they've been confirmed by experts in Peru. Um, and in case anybody listening is thinking, wait a minute, you talk about looting, you want to protect sites, and yet you have this platform that's for everyone, isn't that going to lead to site looting? Um, when you go into the platform and when you look at the satellite images, there's no maps and there's no GPS information. So you don't know where you are. You're somewhere in Peru. Um, the project was developed in close collaboration with the Ministry of Culture uh, in Peru, uh, which which has been great with the platform as well as both in English and Spanish because we wanted many Peruvians to be able to use it. And we're going to be announcing our next countries uh, in the next few months, which we're really, really excited about. So the plan is over the next 10 years to map the world, which wow. may sound a little bit bonkers, but the whole project seemed bonkers when we started. And, you know, we've we've um, we've had some good successes so far. So it's it's a volunteer basis. Uh, if I were to find, I don't know, some indication that there's an artifact in Peru, do you know, is there a credit that's given to the volunteers, or how does that work? So yes, yeah, so you're never finding objects or artifacts from the satellite imagery. You're I only see. ever you're just finding sites. Okay. So let's just say you're on the platform and you find a what you think is a site, and you say yes, this is the thing. Um. So one of the other issues that came up, you know, people said, well, what about bad actors that go on? And, you know, they just marking no for everything. I'm thinking, I, I would say people like people have a lot of time in their hands if they're doing that. Right. Like, I just don't. Yeah, that's a waste but of time. let's just say that there's some not nice people and that's what they want to do. Well, first of all, every image you get is random. Uh -huh. So 
you you will never get the exact same satellite images as anyone else anywhere in the world. Um, a minimum of six people need to look at a single satellite image and five of them need to agree that it's a thing or not a thing before it either gets kicked into the checkbox for us or kicked out of the system. So there has to be an 80% agreement rate. And some tiles uh, or some of these images, people go back and forth and back and forth and back. We've had, I don't know, 40, 50 people look at a tile, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because sometimes things are ambiguous and welcome to my world. Um, so we then get that data, we look at it, um, and we confirm. Um, so there is not a good system yet to kind of give points, as it were. So sure. you, it's the whole thing's a game and you get, uh, you rise in your rank depending on the number of images you look at. Okay, cool. Um, so you get badges, you start off as a wayfinder, pathfinder, trailblazer, and level 10, of course, a space archaeologist. Um, so yeah, we're thinking as we're redesigning the platform, we've gotten tons of feedback from our users who so want to make things more interactive, more engaging. We want to give out more rewards. And for our users, they absolutely loved the content. So as you went up in levels and you spent more time on the site, you unlocked unique content. You could actually learn about different aspects of Peruvian culture. So that's what we want to do in future, you know, tons of videos, tons of information. And we want to, um, especially in the in the next country where we're going, um, as users find things, and that data gets given to the archaeologists who are specialists in that country on the ground, they then go out and map the things, but they're taking pictures and videos. That information would then get fed back to the platform. Mm -hmm. So our users would see, yeah, like you you helped to find You helped this. do this. That's very cool. Is there something that you found uh, in your time doing this that was, I mean, what, what's the most personally meaningful thing that you found? My husband. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. What's the most per uh, personally meaningful old ancient thing that you found? Oh, uh, <laughs> my husband would kill me. I also said my husband. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I've been very lucky with the work that I've done. I get asked this question often and I never have a good answer because, uh, you know, in whatever moment uh, I am, wherever in the world I'm working, uh, I feel very lucky. I try never to take anything for granted. And I've had so many hundreds of moments, whether I'm actually excavating or whether I'm doing mapping and surveying work or whether I'm visiting a colleague site or I'm at a museum um, where I've just gotten to see and experience so many extraordinary things. So yeah, I have a hard time picking one. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see in the book, like I can't, I can't pick one thing. Like there's so many stories to tell that, that I, yeah, I, I'm useless when I get this question because everyone's like, what's the one moment? No, I'm like, that's okay. I, I don't know. I got too many. Well, thank you for taking time to come in and chat with us. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again to Dr. Sarah Parkak. You can find her book, Archaeology from Space, wherever books are sold. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, with additional edits by Reckon Radio producer Alexander Ritchie. The show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records, and it was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. If you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. If you leave a question or a comment in your review, we may read it on an upcoming episode of the show. If you like Reckon, you may want to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Plus, go to al.com slash Reckon to sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on all the news from Alabama and around the South. And thanks again for Reckoning with us. 